talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Diana Weeks and Lisa Poleski are in the newsroom. Will Weber is on the board. Big snowstorm on the way. Is there a vaccination for that? Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, there is a vaccination for that. It's called your old man with a snowblower. I think I'm still sore from the last shoveling out. I still, I still, I think I got a, yeah, I still got a little creak in the back there from, um, um, yeah, but you know, at least my driveway's done. Many of you, it's not, or your corner for that matter. Uh, anyway, uh, you, you're starting to see some snow in some areas, wet, wet stuff, uh, uh, and even, and even ice pellets and such, uh, right down to rain. And depending upon where you are around the lake or on the mountain, uh, depends upon what you get, but, uh, it's certainly on its way. And, uh, they say it, uh, it won't be as bad as the last one in the sense that, uh, it ain't all coming at once or sorry, uh, at a very concentrated time, which, uh, I think it did, uh, last time kind of got a snow bomb last time. Is there such a thing? There is now. All right. It is 309. It is Hamilton today. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board picking the post Malone today. And as well in the newsroom is Diana Weeks and Lisa Paleski. They'll be joining us around the big round table coming up in about an hour and a half after the 430 news. You want to throw a topic on the table? We would love to hear from you. Uh, feel free. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Star. 9900 on your cell. All right. Uh, just when you think things are getting dull and, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the uh, protest is coming to an end, although it's not. <clears throat> not if you listen to any sound bites from Ottawa. Uh, anyway, uh, Aaron O'Toole has been ousted as leader of the Conservative Party. And it was quite a handsome oust, as they say. And uh, we'll wait till later on today to find out who the interim leader of the party is. And then I guess in six weeks, and we'll try to find this out throughout the rest of the show when we're chatting with people, uh, throughout the rest of the show as to uh, what happens. And in, apparently in the next six months, they uh, will come up with a, uh, a leader. Uh, we'll find out what the process is and everything moving forward. Certainly, uh, Pierre Polyev is the front runner uh at this point and uh we were talking we've actually had him on the show and we was talking about that as a selection with michael tobe yesterday and uh, apparently uh well he's been in the game for a long time so he's quite a fierce politician he knows the game he knows uh how to play this and uh and that seems to be where the conservatives have been stumbling for uh, for years, they just haven't been able to to rally the troops, and uh, and and the people you often see in power are not because they're great, but because the opposition has been so weak. So uh, I must say, I was surprised that all this, although you know, insiders have been saying forever, it's it's coming, it's been coming, and uh, I guess the idea was to get it done now as opposed to later, and then start off uh, fresh and such. Uh, I'm a I'm a centrist, so I was hoping that uh, that he could pull the party to the center. Um, and although they say Pierre Polyev is the sort of guy that he can relate to both sides. So, uh, it'll be fascinating to see where this all goes and if he, in fact, is, 
uh, going to be. It's premature to say that he is because there's going to be lots of people that throw their hat in the ring. Uh, but that's certainly, uh, I guess, safe to say is the front runner. Um, and where does this leave Canadian politics? Is the center still there? Uh, is, is Polyev going to try to pull the, the right back in towards by, uh, appealing to all? Because we live in a very, very divisive world. And I mean, it's funny. A lot of people use the term populace, uh, and they use it to referring to the right, but very much not, uh, but not to the left. And there's populace on both sides of the spectrum. It's anything that gets people's attention. We could say, uh, Justin Trudeau has been doing a, been using a populist, uh, movement with the vaccination. Everybody's vaccinated. We should be celebrating. We should be high-fiving each other. We should be so proud of what we accomplished. Yet we're all so divided on this. Um, you know, again, it, it, it's, it's appealing to people's hot button issues. So it's going to be fascinating to see if that's the way it does work out. It certainly gives the liberals, uh, a, a free run for a while, which, you know, I guess in the short term, uh, has a lot of them very excited, but uh, I think a lot are questioning who is uh, who is going to replace, uh, obviously, Aaron O'Toole, and how much more of a formidable opponent will that person be uh, than Aaron O'Toole. Uh, it seems, obviously, uh, w- with the results of the last election, uh, Aaron O'Toole, you know, possibly has peaked, and uh, if somebody comes in and uh, moves... Uh, the party to unite and brings them together and can do so uh, with the country as well. That's the big question. Winning the leadership of the Conservative Party is one thing, but does that produce a leader that you can win uh, a federal election with, which is ultimately what the goal is? Uh, we're going to have to wait and see. All right, jam-packed show coming up. We're going to talk about that as well over the course of the day. Also, uh, the Beach Canal Lighthouse uh, is now overseen by the Hamilton-Oshawa Port Authority. We're going to talk about that. Always, anybody that's lived along the lake or spent any time along the lake and in, in through the Hamilton area and Burlington area, you know of this, and, uh, and it's great to see that it is being preserved. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on this hour. Also, Black History Month. Uh, and virtual museum lecture series in St. Catharines. We're going to talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, more on uh, the conservative leadership race with Tasha Kerridan uh, and, and greater discussion into that. Also, uh, going to be talking about uh, what is going on in Ottawa and also the Trans-Canada Highway, or sorry, not the Trans-Canada, but the uh, highway linking uh, Alberta into the United States in Coots and see exactly where that is going. Uh, as far it looked like yesterday, it was uh, it was going to resolve itself, and then um, unfortunately things went sideways. Also, going to give you a uh, update on the whole Ukraine Russia thing and what's going on in the border and where we are with that, and that's just a sample of uh, what we got coming up. Hope you hang around for it. Feel free to jump into the mix. Always uh, encouraging your feedback. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Scott Thompson isn't worried about ruffling a few feathers. In fact, he kind of likes it. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, I was fortunate enough in a younger period of my life to live uh, along the lake in the Hamilton-Burlington area. And I used to absolutely love getting on my bike and and riding all the way down the beachfront. And this was in the days when there were old cottages there. And, uh, and go out to the, to the lighthouse, 
the Beach Canal Lighthouse, and in you know that was sort of and right out to the end of the pier, go around and come back, and that was sort of like my ride. And I always uh, uh, stared at the lighthouse, and in and, and over the years we've had various guests on talking about the progression of the lighthouse as far as restoration, and you know why haven't we done anything? Uh, for, because for a lot of of uh, Hamiltonians and 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 well anybody that drives over across the uh, uh, the Skyway, it's it, it's a landmark. So now uh, it is it has changed ownership and opens the doors for future preservation. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Ian Hamilton, President and CEO of the Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority, and is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thanks. I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. So give us some history here with the Beach Canal Lighthouse, because a lot of people for years have been talking about fixing this up. What, what has been the hurdle, Why and, and what's different now? Um, a, couple, a couple of challenges, but um, the lighthouse itself was owned by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and the land that it sits on is owned by Public Works. And the, the location of the lighthouse is really close to the, to the lift bridge, which made um, public access to it um, from, a, from a safety perspective and a security perspective nearly impossible. So hmm. hats off to the Biscayne Lighthouse Group. We've been at it for almost 20 years now in trying to find a way to um, restore it and get public access back to it. So we, were, we, we saw an opportunity a couple of years ago and working with them to say, hey, why don't we see if we can't uh, facilitate this and take advantage of us being a, a, federal, uh, a federal cousin and um, see if we can't find a way to um, achieve what you're hoping to achieve. So um, why is this so difficult? Just because it's so old and, and there's so many uh, layers to it, as you just, just said, and there really isn't a priority to go backwards and unravel any of this. Yeah, so it was, again, again because multiple multiple uh, ministries involved and the fact that where it was physically located. So by us getting yeah. involved, it, you know, fundamentally we were able to assume the, um, the liability to ensure that it meets the uh, national heritage standards. We're also able to assume the project of moving the lighthouse um, 60, maybe closer to 100 meters, um, further towards the, uh, the harbor. And um, that'll allow uh, the public to have access uh, at, around the entire entire facility, and hopefully one day inside of the building. Okay, so let's talk about that. Uh, and because many people are surprised that you're going to move it, what do you what do you mean? How are you going to? But then it makes total sense when you're talking about access issues because it's a lighthouse; it's not built as a you know an attraction per se. So, what is the future? What has to be done now moving forward? So we've got a. Um, our um, our sort of VP operations, uh, Bill Fitzgerald, he's working on the project, and what will happen is the lighthouse will actually be um, be lifted as as one piece, um, and then it'll be moved uh, by by some form of um, moffy or trailer, um, 60 feet, and then put on a new foundation or 60 meters, and then put on a new foundation, and that'll be its permanent uh, permanent resting place. But it uh, it sounds it sounds really simple, but it's a um, it's an extremely heavy structure. Um, we estimate I can it imagine. Around, uh, it costs probably around a million dollars to move it, um, but it'll be a real fun operation to to watch, and uh, hopefully we get uh, make a nice uh, a nice video out of it. And what about so that's the lighthouse? So the lighthouse itself. What about the building next to it? Yeah. So the keeper's cottage that'll stay exactly where it is. And the nice thing is we don't have to move that. 
So we can start, um, the Beach Canal Lighthouse Group will enter into a, um, a lease from the Port Authority for that, and they can start their restoration efforts immediately. Um, so the only so the only reason the lighthouse so the only reason the lighthouse is being moved is just simply because of its location. It's just not feasible. They couldn't make it happen there. Yeah, if we'd left it where it was, or if we'd leave it where it is, then you can't give the access to the facility that we uh, yeah. that we really want. Um, and even when you look at it, um, you can get a lot better views of it when it's moved away, so you can see uh, see it uh, against the against the harbor as opposed to with the big lift bridge behind it. So, anybody upset that you're separating the the lighthouse from the cottage? Uh, no, and and I and we probably if if you see the locations, it doesn't really feel that separated. No, but, uh, I'm trying to figure out where it's going to be. So it would move closer in towards the harbor. Would that put it like underneath the skyway? Um, sort of midway between the lift bridge and the skyway. Right. Okay. And it'll be. So, about the same distance from the from the water as it is say from the actual canal as it is today, so it'll it'll certainly right. look like it's in the uh, in the right spot. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, and so uh, moving that, my goodness, that's that's one project. Uh, I can imagine that's going to take a while. Um, a- any idea for a timeline on that? Uh, we're targeting to move it in 2022. Um, we haven't uh, overcome every one of the challenges yet, but uh, that would be uh, that would be our hope. And certainly, from a funding side of it, the um, the federal government has um, has pitched in the uh, through the future fund, which is a Hamilton fund. They pitched in, and then the Hamilton National Board Authority will assume the um, the remaining costs. So, from the funding side, everything is in place, and now it's just uh, overcoming the engineering challenges. Wow, and that's going to be fun to watch as well. Uh, very exciting, and you know, good for all of you guys for working together and making this happen. Because obviously, it's it's a little bit more complicated than people think. Ian Hamilton, president and CEO of the Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority, uh, the Beach Canal Lighthouse uh, is now going to finally start some restoration after a quick move. Ian, thanks for the time. Good luck. I'm sure we'll talk again on this. Great. Thank you very much for having me. February is Black History Month, as you no doubt know. And uh, there's some fascinating history, not only uh, locally, but just outside of our boundaries. And uh, I spent some time in St. Catharines, and they have a rich, rich, rich history, uh, black history, including the Underground Railroad, uh, Railroad which is a uh, just a, a fascinating period and time in our history. I want to introduce you to Sarah Nixon, public programmer with the St. St. Catharines Museum and with us now. Sarah, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So tell us about, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm selfishly asking you about the Underground Railroad because uh, I was exposed to this earlier on and got to learn a little bit about it. Um, but but to, to people who may not know the rich history in the Niagara area about this, talk about what it, what it was. Yeah, absolutely. So in the period in the the mid 1800s, when slavery was still very much a strong institution in the United States, we had uh, freedom seekers, uh, black slaves who escaped slavery and found freedom, security and safety in Canada. And Niagara was a a large terminus for, for these freedom seekers seeking safety and security here because of our proximity to the border. And the Niagara River, of course, was where many crossed and uh, St. Catharines as you know the largest urban center in Niagara at this time in the mid-1800s really became a, a final destination a terminal uh, where the, these uh, folks they, they settled and built their new lives as free people in our city. 
So tell us about that. You know, here's where the journey ended for them or in the life started uh, the journey to get there. Describe that. It was certainly very dangerous. I, I I know when we when we think of the Underground Railroad, there's lots of imagery that comes to mind of you know this dangerous um these these safe houses that where people would escape to and hide and abolitionists or uh, conductors of the Underground Railroad would would save these slaves and bring them to safety. Um, it, there's lots of romantic imagery, but really it comes down to these really brave individuals who knew that they weren't being treated right. And they they, they had agency, they had um, they, they had courage and they took this leap of faith and uh, and found themselves on, uh, on this journey where they did have help from abolitionists, uh, white abolitionists, black abolitionists, free people in the Northern US, but also in Canada. And uh, with their own fortitude, they were able to carve out a path for themselves and crossing the Niagara River really meant freedom. They were no longer in the United States um, at this time. And Canada, uh, you know, of course, we have our own history of racism and prejudice, uh, but we were seen as a welcoming place for these people to build their new lives. They'd settle in St. Catharines and have paying jobs for the first time and homes and gardens and raise their own families and really thrive as a community here. How difficult was it to make what we see now as a you know a very short journey across the Niagara River how difficult was that last stage uh, definitely, we had in the United States, um, especially after the passing of the Fugitive Slave Law in 1850, this made it essentially legal to kidnap uh, escaping uh, slaves or Black people, even if these Black people were free in the United States. Uh, this law essentially made it legal to capture a Black person and send them into slavery in the South. I mean, of course, I'm simplifying it right now, but there wasn't danger to be a Black person in the United States in this period of the 1850s until the end of the Civil War. Uh, so these people would have been fearing for their lives, fearing of being captured. And uh, the Niagara River was seen as a symbol of hope. So crossing the river uh, by boat, which was often done, uh, was was seen as that, that sense of hope, that final hurdle. And when they made it on the other side, uh, the journey was now a new journey of settling into a new life. And talk about the safe houses and where they ended up once they touched our shores in, in the Niagara and St. Catharines area. Yeah, so um, St. Catharines abolitionists in, in Niagara and in St. Catharines, they were quite active here. St. Catharines had a, an organization called the Refugee, uh, so, oh, the Refugee Friends Slave Society, um, who organized to help uh, Black individuals, freedom seekers settle, find jobs, find work. Uh, so they not, not didn't necessarily have to hide by the time they came to St. Catharines because we had a, we had a welcoming community here already. Mm. Uh, black community started in St. Catharines as early as the 1820s. Freedom seekers were coming here as early as then. So as they started to build a community, more and more followed and, and that grew. I, I remember being in an old, uh, and I don't know if there's any truth to this at all, Sarah, but I, in being in a very, very old home, which is uh, quite known in, in St. Catharines, and it had tunnels going down to the river. Where and that was the rumor was that they would this was part of the underground railway and they would bring people up from the river and such. Is there any accuracy to those stories? 
Uh, yeah, I think we all have stories about um, about these underground railroad safe houses and hiding places. I know exactly the tunnels that you're talking about here in St. Catharines. Yeah. And I think a lot of these come from, um, I wouldn't say. Is there a radio station? Is there a radio station on in that house now? Yes, CKTV. Yes. Uh, <laughs> okay, so that's, yeah. Uh, now, you know, we yes. might as well tell everybody it's a competitor of ours, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, the White House of Rock is rocking all the time from top to bottom. <laughs> exactly. um, but yeah, of it's course. a very unusual building, isn't it? Definitely, that building itself has a lot of history in in St. Catharines, uh, and I think when we have you know buildings like this that have lots of history and are kind of legend and folklore, local folklore starts to kind of build around these places. So we see something like tunnels, and we don't have the written historical record to tell us what these tunnels are. So then we begin to make stories and tell each other, well, what maybe what the tunnels <laughs> yeah. could be, and because we have so much rich underground railroad history here. I think we started to make connections that might not necessarily have been there before. Boy, but it certainly scares the bejeebers out of you and put shivers <laughs> up your spine just thinking about it all. So tell us about, uh, the, the, this is great, uh, great, great, great stuff. Uh, tell us how we can find out more and, and what the St. Catharines Museum is doing with all of this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we are really trying this year with our Black History programming to focus the story more on the freedom seekers. What was it like to be a Black person coming to St. Catharines, finding freedom for the first time? And what was it like to live here in their every day? Uh, so the programs we have really explores this from a lot of different aspects. Uh, one of the programs I'm really excited for is called On the Liberty Line. This is a virtual program that you can um, visit or I guess, explore experience remotely. So I know, you know, I've got some people in Hamilton right now. And this is virtual. You can tune in on our Facebook page or on YouTube live stream. And it's a, a whole presentation that looks at what it was like to be a, a freedom seeker living in St. Catharines. Where did this community live and work? And what was it like? Where did they go to church? How did they thrive? So we kind of look at questions like that and really giving voice and perspective to freedom seekers. Um, and, and the Black community here in St. Catharines, not just the Underground Railroad era, but all the way up until today, there's really a legacy with the Underground Railroad. Mm. A lot of uh, descendants of freedom seekers still live in Niagara today. Uh, so what, trying to trace that legacy. Fascinating stories, and uh, you can find out more. Sarah Nixon's been with us, public pro uh, programmer at the St. Catharines Museum, St. Catharines and the surrounding area, rich in black history, especially in regard to uh, freedom seekers and, and those in the Underground Railway. Uh, uh, Sarah, thanks so much for the time. Fascinating information. Hopefully we'll chat again. Be well. Yes, thank you. And all this information is on our website, so definitely check out what we got going on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Aaron O'Toole out as leader of the federal conservatives, ousted. What more do you need to know? Let's bring in Tasha Carradine, principal and navigator and lecturer with the Max Bell School of Public Policy, McGill University, and with us now. Tasha, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, I am. Thank you so much. Uh, Aaron O'Toole is out. Pierre Polyev all uh, obviously seems to be the front runner at this point. Uh, at least that's what we're hearing. Is it a slam dunk for him? I don't think it's a slam dunk at all. I think this is going to be a battle for not just the leadership, but the soul of the conservative party. And uh, I think that there are a lot of people right now probably working their phones wherever they are to uh, to try and see whether they 
should get in on this um, and people from different sides of the of the political spectrum uh, within the conservative movement. And uh, so, no, I think that uh, he's the most talked about, but he does not represent everyone in the party. There'll be a big conversation. Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, my next point, uh, if he was to take over, can he unite the party? Does he have the ability to bring it together? I think he has the ability to bring some parts of it together. Absolutely. Um, and talking more about the, I guess, right or further right side of the party. Um, fiscal conservatives, for sure. I mean, Pierre is an excellent fiscal conservative. There's no question. But I think a lot of people who would hitch their wagons to what he represents um, would not be the people who would want to be in a more progressive conservative party. And that is what we saw this weekend um, in terms of the crowd that Pierre stood with and others as well, like uh, Leslie Lewis and Michael Cooper, uh, and that they embraced. And that, I think, is going to be the the wedge question is how do you broaden the base beyond the crowd that was there i'm not talking about the extremist elements but i'm talking about people who were there um expressing their point of view on on issues of mandates and that kind of thing so who can give him a run and who is the most towards the center well there are a number of people who are being talked about um there's uh, michael chong within caucus uh, who would be considered more moderate there are people outside the party who are conservatives who used to be uh, federal mps and also provincial like patrick brown um here in ontario there's uh, also i'm thinking you know former 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 luminaries like are being talked about peter mckay i don't think he's in uh current provincial um mpps caroline mulrooney is a name i don't think she's in either but you know mm. people can change their minds um some people say bring back Ronna Ambrose. I can pretty much say she's not going to be in. We've already had a no from Gerard Deltel from Quebec. Um, he would he would have been a bit more moderate, but I think again that speaks to the issue of Quebec. Like where's where where's Quebec in this whole equation? Whoever the leader is has to be someone who speaks French, who is able to bring the two geographies together. Never mind the two factions of the Conservative Party, and also broaden the tent. This is the thing. I think whoever whoever does successfully get the leadership. Um, I'm hoping anyway, is going to go in that direction. And we'll have to bring in new members because the existing membership may not rally to that. Um, You'll need to bring in more people to say, hey, if we want to win, this is how you do it. That's a that's a great point here, Tasha, because winning the leadership is one thing. Winning the rest of the country is another. Does this necessarily mean that the party will veer further to the right? Well, it's not to the it's not just to the right. I think what you're seeing is is a battle between populism and true conservatism. Yeah. And true conservatism and progressive conservatism in the Canadian conservative tradition, um, you know, with conservative uh, philosophers like George Grant, for example, um, or if you go way back to England to Edmund Burke, the sort of principles they espouse are not the uh, populist only individualist point of view. They are small government, yes, they're not statist, but they're very community focused. They are, you know, built upon the idea of the little platoons of society and people getting together to make local decisions within family, within community, within church, within institutions of local nature. It's not a top-down government process. It's a bottom-up. And that's really what conservatism is about. So I'd like to hear those ideas out there because I think that's something that would resonate with people who aren't conservative today, but really in their hearts, they are of that free enterprise local decision, um, not top-down, not interventionist, but still there is an element of collective belonging that the other side lacks. So I'm hoping we have that conversation. 
Uh, we certainly know what have, what's happened with the protests uh, and, and the convoy and such, and now this other news in Ottawa. Are we at a turning point here, Tasha? Well, I think it is a bit of a watershed, yes. I mean, the knives came down really quickly uh, here. You know, the, the, the guillotine came down really fast today. Yeah. And sometimes those those moments do, you know, they're catalysts, they're watershed, they're, they're, they're it's, it's, you got it, got a fork in the road. I think Aaron O'Toole was right last night when he said there's a fork in the road, there's two roads to take. The thing is, he wasn't the guy to take them down the first road, which is the big tent right. road, the large progressive conservative coalition that could beat the liberals. So, you know, that's, I think, yeah, I think in that sense, that's the debate I hope the party has and resolves it. Tasha Kierden with us, principal and navigator and lecturer with the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill. Tasha, as always, thanks so much for your time. Be well. Oh, thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Obviously, we know what's uh, what's happening in Ottawa, and my goodness, even watching uh, the politicians going in and out of uh, the parliament buildings, and they're trying to interview them, and <laughs> the sound of the horns are so loud. My goodness, it's just like a continuous drone uh, you can hear in the background. Well, obviously, the same thing uh, on a smaller scale, but uh, with equal impact, is happening in Coots, Alberta, where uh, Alberta joins the U.S., and the border jammed up. There, it appeared yesterday that RCMP were starting to get some of the trucks rolling. We saw uh, trucks moving out of the way, and then all of a sudden, uh, it went in the other direction. To talk more about all of this, Heather Yurix West is with us, Global National Alberta correspondent, and is with us now. Heather, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we were watching uh, yesterday, and it appeared as if uh, the RCMP were getting a handle on this, and we started to see trucks uh, move away from the blockade. What happened? Yeah, so this has been a pretty eventful, what are we, about 24, 26 hours since yeah. then? So, yeah, I'll, I'll take you through a little bit what happened. The RCMP had plans to, um, uh, to make some arrests to try and dismantle this illegal protest. So they went in shortly after lunchtime yesterday, uh, a lot of officers, um, you know, the tactical response unit was there. Their first step was to talk to all of the drivers of the trucks. About 100 vehicles were still parked on, on these roads. And, and just to kind of issue a warning saying that you, uh, you you have to leave now or arrests will follow. So that started to go okay. We saw, saw three or four vehicles uh, decide to leave at that time. And then um, suddenly we were told to get off the road because uh, there were some cars coming down um, that had breached a RCMP checkpoint uh, further north of Coots, and that they were coming down uh, the wrong way on the highway towards us. So uh, just a short time after that, we saw about 15 vehicles, including farm equipment and tractors and uh, a semi-truck, a pickup truck. They, they had basically gone around an RCMP checkpoint through fields and ditches and a dirt road and had shored up. Um, the numbers here. So, you know, obviously a very, very tense situation. Uh, we saw vehicles go right across both lanes of traffic into the ditch. RCMP at that time um, decided to take a step back. We, we now know that there was a head-on collision um, involving some of these vehicles that had breached the RCMP checkpoint and uh, a resident of, of this small community, Coots, oh, a man. lot of people live here. Uh, they were just trying to get groceries, uh, head-on collision. Luckily, it was just minor injuries, very frightening, and an assault uh, took place shortly after that. So with tensions escalated, RCMP uh, took a step back. They decided that in the interest of public safety, they weren't going to be making any arrests. 
And I can tell you that since then, um, just in the last little bit, we are seeing some signs that maybe this uh, new approach, some negotiations that have been having, that have been taking place over the last uh, number of hours. Uh, while we're still trying to confirm details, I can tell you from what I can see is that the truckers have been moving um, to the shoulders of each side. So we are seeing some hopeful signs that maybe negotiations with RCMP and the protesters are getting somewhere. Um, we are waiting to get some confirmation. There is a lawyer for the truckers that uh, is involved in some negotiations with RCMP. So, you know, fingers crossed, it's day five of this blockade that, that maybe maybe we're getting somewhere. What about protests in other parts of the province? We hear that there's been these little pop-up things. Yeah, there's a lot of organizing happening online. We've had some uh, protests, some blockades happen in, in other parts of southern Alberta, highways that are being blocked for, for short periods of time. Um, just past that RCMP checkpoint, uh, there is a long line of other truckers that are um, there in support. So, yeah, th- we're also hearing that there's you know some other blockades planned for the weekend, so, um, yeah, it's in the interest of a lot of people to, to see some sort of resolution here in the, in the days to come. So who are the protesters? I mean, they're obviously having that discussion in Ottawa, uh, the PM at this point, or well, even since the beginning, painting them with the same brush. Obviously, as things have dragged on, the serious ones are there and the moderates have gone home. Who is this? Who is left? Well, the people that I've spoken with are people that are angry about vaccine mandates. They're angry about um, COVID-19 restrictions. They want freedom back. We, you know, we see people that are angry with the federal government, angry with the provincial government uh, here in Alberta. And, and that's what they're, they're asking for. They're asking for um, all COVID-19 restrictions to be rescinded. This isn't just about, you know, vaccine mandates for cross-border truckers. Uh, mm-hmm. The people that are here want all COVID-19 mandates r- rescinded. Any idea of a timeline here, Heather? I mean, you said the highway, it looks like they're going to the shoulders, which, you know, we're assuming maybe, hopefully, they'll let traffic go uh, to and fro. But any sort of timeline here? Yeah, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, I think a lot of people are surprised that, that we're here still on day five and it's blocked. So um, this is a major uh, border crossing for Western Canada. 800 to 1,200 commercial trucks pass through here every day. Uh, so it, it is of the industry, uh, this, of the interest of a lot of industries to get uh, traffic moving again. And uh, the RCMP say that they're trying. So we will watch and, and see. But uh, as I said uh, earlier, it looks like there are at least some hopeful signs in the last uh, hour or so. So we'll continue to monitor. Heather Yorix west with us, Global National Alberta correspondent, keeping her eyes on Coots, Alberta, and what is going on on the U.S.-Canada border. Uh, Heather, thanks for the time. Be well. Stay safe. You're welcome. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Will Weber is on the board in the newsroom, making the way around the big virtual roundtable. Diana Weeks and Lisa Pileski. Uh, Table heads, good afternoon. Great you're all here. Thanks so much for joining. Yes, good afternoon. Hello. 
I, I, snow's coming. You guys ready? You battening down the hatches yet? All right, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I'm still sore from the last one, man. Uh, poll question of the day. We'll start with as we always do. And you know, it was interesting. I'm watching the news coverage earlier today uh, with Aaron O'Toole and, and ousting and all that stuff. So they're talking to all the politicians coming in and out of uh, in and out of Parliament, and all you can hear is just the drone of constant air horns just just continuously uh throughout the afternoon as they're doing these interviews uh and, and you know we here that are out of uh out of earshot you know we we're, we forget how bad this is but uh it just appeared one just one solid horn kept going except from various sources uh how long are these going to last 58 percent chose another week diana we'll start with you what are your thoughts on all of this all of this so you want my thoughts on the protest in general or just how long when- do you think it's gonna last I, I I don't know. I mean, I think it's lasted far too long. Um, and I think, yeah. you know, in my opinion, I think it shouldn't have even began. But again, like we won't go into that if we don't have to. Um, but yeah, th- that has made it very difficult for us to cut audio clips uh, for anything coming out of Ottawa with the <laughs> constant, incessant blaring of horns. So I can only imagine yeah. uh, the people that are there, how frustrating that must be. Uh, Mercedes Stevenson, who we were talking to from Global News earlier on in the week, was saying that somebody had an actual train horn that they had uh, Oh, that's mounted. not annoying. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well put. Uh, Lisa, your thoughts. How much longer is this going to last? Well, it was really frustrating. I was watching the um, police services board that was live streamed on Global News today. Chief Peter Slowly was saying, you know, all options are on the table. They're determined to do whatever needs to be done to bring an end to these protests. But he acknowledged that, you know, policing may not be the solution. Like they may not be able to end this through policing, which is kind of terrifying to hear when when they're spending $800,000 a day on policing. I mean, what is, it's just, it's absurd to see, but we are seeing some progress apparently out west that that, uh, there's been a sort of breakthrough with some of the lanes in that blockade and coots having been uh, apparently lifted at this point. So maybe we'll see some development. I hope it doesn't take a week. I hope it doesn't take longer than that because I can't imagine how awful the people of downtown Ottawa are feeling and how their eardrums are doing. Well, yeah, exactly. And we just heard from uh, Heather West out, uh, Heather York West out West and was talking about there. She was starting to see traffic actually pull off to the side of the road and opening a lane uh, through Coots. So hopefully, uh, as you said, that that's going to happen. You know, I think Canadians have about this much uh, patience for this sort of thing. And I'm holding up my fingers. In other words, uh, listen to the cause, do whatever. But then once it gets to this point, whether it's a railway, whether it's an indigenous protest, whether it's truckers, uh, then it's time to move on. How long do you think this is going to last, Will? Uh, well, it depends. You know, Occupy Wall Street, right? That lasted in the media for, what, two weeks? But protesters were there for a long time after we had all since forgotten. Mm. So it could end up like that, where there's just a few more on the fringe, more of the extreme uh, folk there who are just saying, uh, end everything, end everything, as the world continues to spin around them. Exactly. Aaron O'Toole out as conservative leader. That's the big news today. Uh, he was attempting to bring to the sar- uh, bring the party to the center. Uh, have we lost the center in Canadian politics as a result of this? Diana, your thoughts? No, I don't think so at all. Um, I mean, it, 
none of our parties are, are very right. I mean, the mainstream parties, none are very right or left. I mean, both of them are pretty center. And I think, obviously, Aaron O'Toole was trying to take the Conservatives more center. And uh, I guess the vast majority of the Conservative caucus wasn't appreciative of, of that for for whatever reason. So it, it's it's be interesting to see, as we talked about yesterday, how this is going to play out for the Conservatives, um, you know, from a news standpoint to see where they go next and who they're going to choose as their interim leader tonight. Lisa, your thoughts? Uh, he was attempting to bring it to the centre and didn't happen. What does this mean? What does it mean for both the left and the right? Well, I don't know what it means necessarily because it's really hard to tell. I, I think this is a very interesting place that we're at in a political stage uh, for Canada. But you're right, considering you know the protest and now this. It's it, do you feel we're at a turning point? I I don't know because it. Well, I I wanted to say that I was listening to O'Toole's speech and it, he po- went live on Facebook basically about uh, forty mm-hmm. minutes ago and he was saying, you know, the importance of listening to the other side and acknowledging, you know, understanding other people's points of view and I think that's that's a really great sentiment parting sentiment um definitely to hear from him and I hope that whoever replaces him will kind of keep that in mind that you know there there will be even differing opinions in the conservative party as we're seeing and um you know fracturing further is not the way forward for anyone at this point yeah very true will your thoughts uh as far as the question uh have we lost the center in Canada um Oh, it depends on how you define center, really. Are you defining center as like a, a your average run-of-the-mill Democrat down in uh, the United States or the centrist parties in, I don't know, say, uh, Germany? Because the political center, quote-unquote, seems to vary by region. So I guess, you know, sort of the liberals and conservatives are the slightly left and slightly right of center party, generally speaking. All right. Uh, I wanted to squeak this one in because, you know, we hear so much about boundary expansion and, um, you know, should we expand, build more? Obviously, we need to build more because we have lots of people coming in and and as well as investments with housing and sort and that sort of thing. There is a low supply. I know there's other issues there. Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton all lost inner city green space. Uh, in the last year, should we be filling in cities with more buildings or should we try to create more green space and make those areas that are there more inhabitable? Let's start with you, Diana. Well, we've talked about this many times before with a Hamilton urban sprawl and, and everything going on there. So we know that that's been a really hot topic here. Mm-hmm. Um, my position is is just that obviously we need more houses, um, you know, and, and obviously it's it's a tricky one. I don't think it's as black as, and, and white as, you know, go out and build on the green space or build up in the core. Um, yeah. But I do think that things might be changing. And, and, and I know, you know, a lot of the times our parents or our ancestors, you know, having that backyard, having that house with their, you know, you know, husband, wife and kids, family, that's not the way it necessarily is anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, we're progressing towards maybe having different types of housing. And I think that building into the sky is not necessarily a bad thing, because I do think that, uh, you know, people would be open to that, especially with the prices of houses right now. I agree with that. But when you come down the elevator, there's got to be something there other than a concrete sidewalk in another another building. So what are your thoughts on this? Uh, Should we fill in cities with more buildings or create more green space? I guess it obviously does 
doesn't have to be black and white, your thoughts? No, and that's actually what I was going to say. It really doesn't have to be black and white. I'm seeing, you know, those kinds of high rises that have green spaces built into them. And it's like it, there's a way of striking a balance. Mm. And I think there. I was looking at an article that kind of frames it as basically considering the city as an ecosystem of its own and its own having considering biodiversity when you're doing city planning and urban planning. So, you know, you have to keep that stuff in mind as you're expanding the city upwards. And I will say that I'm one of those people who lives in a downtown high rise. Yes, I love green spaces. And I think there's ways of combining the two. It's not black and white. Yeah, and you're, you know what you're seeing? You're seeing more buildings now with balconies on them, which yeah. at one time, you know, everything was just sealed in. Wait, I mean, I, I could never imagine that if I was ever in an apartment. I don't, you at least need to go outside and at least get the air. So things are changing. That's for sure. Diana Weeks, Lisa Pulaski, William Weber, all around the big round table. Thanks, kids. It's always much appreciated. Let's give you an update with what is happening along the Ukraine and Russia border. Uh, Vladimir Putin warns that if Ukraine joins NATO, it could lead to war between Russia and a Western military. Alliance. To talk more about all of this, Stephen Sademan is with us, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University and Director of Canadian Defence and Security Network with us now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. I'm, I'm better now that I got to hear some Beatles uh, right before our, our segment. That was great. There you go. I get you into one of those moves just before you, you you talk about something that's less optimistic, we'll say. Uh, let's talk about where we are with this. Is this all centering around uh, the Ukraine wanting to join NATO? How big of a factor is that in all of this? It's big and it's small. That is that it's something that Putin has made a lot big deal about. But the challenge is that there's no medium-term or short-term reality that has Ukraine in NATO. Uh, we made a commitment in 2008 to open the door to them, but uh, the reality is, is that NATO requires consensus to make a decision, and there are plenty of countries in NATO that do not want to have Ukraine in anytime soon, either because it doesn't make the conditions, because it's not a stable democracy, or because they know that they'd be buying a whole lot of trouble with the Russians. So uh, the formality is that we, want, we don't want to have the Russians decide who gets to become a member of NATO or not, but the reality is that Ukraine's not joining anytime too soon. So, what is going to stop uh, Russian creep here? What, because obviously, it, you know, it's got the attention of the world. People are sending military uh, supplies of some sort. What, what is, uh, what's going to stop this from creeping forward? We saw this happen with Crimea. Obviously, what, what's going to stop this once and for all? Uh, well, it depends on what Putin's domestic political interests are, frankly. Uh, if he gets more mileage out of, of not going ahead, that, and if he thinks that going ahead and invading Ukraine will cause him more problems than it solves, then he won't. And if he thinks he can get away with it, then he'll go ahead. He's an opportunist. Uh, the West has made it very clear that there will be economic costs. He may or may not believe it. Uh, he is concerned about Ukraine slipping into the Western sphere of influence. Uh, the challenge is that Russia has its own ability to secure itself and uh, through its own devices, its own legal weapons, its own military, it doesn't really need to worry about uh, Ukraine. But uh, in terms of ideology, in terms of uh, ego, in terms of Russia's sense of itself as a great power, uh, Putin wants to keep Ukraine and Belarus and other parts of the former Soviet space in, in Russia. And that matters to him in terms of his own interests and his own identity and in terms of how he plays to his own audience. How much patience does the rest of the world have before they say enough's enough? 
infinite patience because we don't want to have a war over Ukraine. I, I think we can sit there and do this for, for quite a while. The yeah. time is really not working for him because it is costly to have all these troops on the border of Ukraine. It's not really costing us that much to, to threaten sanctions. And the Beijing Olympics have been uh, talked about in this discussion. What what factor do they play into this? Many thought that he would, if he was going to attack, would have done it before the games. Uh, China had said, please don't do this during the games. What factor does that play into it, or does it? I'm not so sure that how that matters. I mean, the thing about, if we look back to 2014, the, his uh, seizure of, of Crimea yeah. undid all the goodwill that occurred when the Russians uh, hosted the games in 2014. So that timing wasn't really related, you know, wasn't really favorable for his country. It blew all of the pl- good political will that had been developed. And so right now, I don't think the Olympics are like one of our major feature in his calculations. I think it matters more in events on the ground in Ukraine and events on the ground within Russia and the negotiations. I think the negotiations about are far more than the uh, Olympics that uh, West has continued to talk to him. Macron's continued to reach out. As long as we get talking, that might defer things a while longer. Uh, Russia, of course, has energy for uh, many of its surrounding nations, including Germany, who've kind of tried to stay out of this. How does that change the discussion, especially around energy? Well, the Germans, when they uh, reacted after the Fukushima nuclear uh, disaster, they they went off of their own nuclear weapons. Uh, no, not weapons. I'm sorry. Over their over nuclear power, they didn't really have a good plan for Plan B, and so they've been very dependent even more dependent than they were before on energy from, from Russia. So what the United States has been doing lately has been trying to find alternative supplies in case things get really, really tense and if the Russians cut off the, the fuel. So that's the American strategy right now to, to find other ways to find energy in case the Russians uh, use that as a, as a weapon. Where do you see this going, Stephen? Is this dragging out forever? I'm not sure it's to drag out forever, but I think anybody who makes a, a determinative prediction about what's going to happen next week or next month in Ukraine is, is fooling you, because we really don't know what's going to happen. We've done what we can to establish a deterrent threat, uh, but ultimately Ukraine is not a member of NATO. We are not going to have Canadians and Brits and Americans and Germans die on battlefields in Ukraine. Hmm. We want to avoid World War III, uh, and who knows that? But the, the Ukrainians are in a pretty good position to impose costs. They would probably lose a war with with Russia, but they would make it very, very painful for the Russians. And so uh, that's something that that Putin has to consider. Stephen Sadman with us, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Aaron O'Toole no longer the leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, considering where we are in Canada, what does this mean for the political landscape moving forward? Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor, political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well and uh, on an exciting day. It is exciting, you know. It's funny, Henry, because it seems if you're a, if you're a political head, days like this are pretty exciting. Why do you say this is exciting? Well, I mean that a caucus gets rid of their uh, leader. Uh, that that's exciting. It doesn't happen very often, but to see it happen uh, is just is is ra- it's, you know, to me just somewhat amazing. But anyway. and it also it also signals change, doesn't it, Henry? So who do you think is going to replace him? That replacing him, well, permanently or temporarily, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure. I mean, if looking at the votes, that it may very well go, they may very well go back to a Western leader who's 
perhaps more conservative than he was. Uh, I would think that's probably what's going to happen, but uh, we'll have to see. Uh, a lot of people throwing around the name Pierre Polyev. Do you think that it, he's a, a, a strong contender? And obviously too early to call, but your thoughts? Yeah, I think so. But I think uh, I have a feeling that the, uh, the, the Western part of the party will probably say, you know, we, we had a lot of success, particularly with Stephen Harper. But there's, they'll, they'll have find somebody out West to do it. I may be wrong. I mean, I just don't think they would feel – I think there's a lot of people out West that just aren't in the conservative party, would just not feel comfortable with anybody from Quebec, especially a francophone. Now, I may be wrong about that, but I, I, I get that feeling. So uh, do you think we'll see somebody new or some familiar faces? Well, there could be somebody new. I, I don't really know who it would be right now. Uh, I think well, it's, I mean, I think it's going to take, I mean, they're talking about six months to get a new yeah. permanent leader. I think it's going to be a year. I mean, this is a party that's got, you know, first of all, you know, a lot of people are leaving with O'Toole. I mean, a lot of his assistants and people who made the party run. So they got to rebuild the party. I mean, that's what happens when you get a new leader. Essentially, mm-hmm. you have to rebuild the party and, and just have, you know, and it's difficult to rebuild the party with new people to find a leader. And then that new leader is going to have to rebuild the party to run an election. Yeah, this is a big upheaval in the in a, in a political party. Yeah, it's going to be a long process, that's for sure. Uh, obviously, Aaron O'Toole was trying to bring the party to the center. The fact that he couldn't do that, couldn't unite the uh, the party. I always thought the win was in the center. Uh, obviously, I'm wrong. So, uh, what does this mean for politics in Canada? Does this mean more divisiveness? Does this mean more polarization? Are we going to see either you're on the right or you're on the left? Well, you know the. I think I think there's a lot of different things going on. Let me say something that probably no one's talked about that I know of. But this, I think, and I think right away, who are the big winners and losers? And may, immediately I come to the big winner is not even anybody in federal politics. I think the big leader is, is Doug Ford. Because hmm. here we have a leader of the Conservative Party from Durham, from Ontario, with a lot of staff who are, everybody agrees, his staff, by and large, I mean, not everybody, but I think there's a, these people are very experienced, and, yeah, they make the occasional mistake, but they know how to run a party. Even, and, and they're now available. They've all lost their jobs. And lo and behold, who needs these kinds of people? Doug Ford, because he's going to fight an election in three months. Mm. And I, I, these people are going to get jobs fairly quickly, I'm sure, in Doug's, uh, Doug Ford's pa- uh, party uh, in running the election. He, he's darn lucky to have them. Now, the, and also the interesting thing, as I bet Doug Ford will ask, we may never know about it for a while, but I'm sure he's going to get on the phone and he would say, you know, Mr. O'Toole, you know, how about you running in the Durham riding we have in, my, in the provincial election? Because hmm. we know, know he loves, O'Toole loves the Durham riding. And who held that Durham riding for so long uh, yeah, for the point. conservatives was John O'Toole. And John O'Toole, you know, won that riding over and over again. And quite frankly, that riding is actually not a particularly safe conservative riding. It's conservative, but not safe. And I'm sure he's going to be asking O'Toole, well, why don't you come and, you know, take that riding? It was your father's riding. Uh, We need you there. Now, they do have a candidate, but that candidate is not an incumbent. That is, he doesn't already hold the job. So I'm sure he'd be willing to step down if Ford asked him to step down. So we'll see that. So I think Ford is the big winner. On the federal level, 
I think the big winner is going to be Jagmeet Singh. The reason, really? Yes, and the reason is because the the Conservative Party is going to be in a state of disorganization for over a year as they mm-hmm. sort out the leadership. I think. In the meantime, the the NDP is is you know is 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 you know they've run elections and and Jagmeet Singh has gone through these, and so he's the one that I essentially think is going to be really you know able to to gain the attention because he's got a set of policies. He sticks to them. Uh, he knows those policies, and he basically hammers away at them. And I just, I think, I think I, that's the one. I, like, I'm not predicting in any way he's going to yep. become the official opposition, but I think this is really good for, for, uh, for the N, the federal NDP. That's fascinating. Last two points. That's why you're the uh, political science professor here, Henry. So what are your thoughts on uh, how is Justin Trudeau reacting to this information today? Well, I, I think, uh, I mean, he was very generous. Well, you know what's very interesting? Trudeau uh, said all these nice words about O'Toole in question period. Uh, Jagmeet Singh did. The leader of the bloc did. Yeah. Nobody in the Conservative Party, you know, by themselves prompted, you know, without a prompt, said anything good about O'Toole. I mean, I was, you know, there were some good remarks after Trudeau said, you know, said all these nice things about O'Toole, and finally, you know, he gets a, a conservative who says, well, I agree with you, you know? I mean, it, I, I just think that shows, you know, that that really shows lack of class, if you want to know the truth. It's a blood sport, that's for sure. I mean, that, by uh, your own people, I mean, the knives in his back are not liberal knives, they're not NDP knives, they're not block knives. The knives in O'Toole's back are conservative knives. and that, Good that's, point. And I think there are a lot of conservatives are gonna, who are going to look at this and say, I I'm not very happy how, how this went down. Henry Jasek with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, you have a good evening. Bye-bye. Lots to talk about uh, politically today, obviously with uh, not only the situation in Ottawa, but the situation in Ottawa with um, the uh, changing of the guard in the Federal Conservative Party. To talk more about all of this and where the Conservative Party is right now is Professor Andrew McDougall, and he is with us now. Uh, Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. It's always a pleasure to be on. Uh, your thoughts on where we are today? Um, I, I guess some uh, predicted and saw that that this was coming, and no surprise here. But now that O'Toole is out, uh, where do you see the direction of the Conservative Party going? Does this mean the party is going to veer to the right? I mean, it certainly seems like it. I'm going to admit that the speed uh, by which this happened took me a little bit by surprise. Uh, the fact that uh, you know he lost the election obviously meant that he was going to have to answer a lot of questions about his leadership over it, and those were always still sort of boiling beneath the surface. Um, but this was was very swiftly done, uh, you know, and 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 very effectively done. Uh, so it, it was uh, it was interesting to see how quickly that came together. But I don't think there's any real read on it, you know, from an outsider's perspective, that it looks like it's setting the Conservative Party up for uh, a lurch to the right. I mean, I think most people sort of interpret this as being dissatisfaction with what they see as a more moderate stance by Aaron O'Toole. Sort of the idea that, you know, there was a, an unspoken bargain that if he ran on a moderate platform, he would give them, uh, you know, a government. When that didn't come together, I think the Conservatives, uh, you know, were thinking that maybe he's not the right guy for the job. So is it he's not the right guy for the job or he can't sell the center? 
I mean, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, he was always, I think, a little bit out of step with some elements in the party, right? I think for for people that were a little bit more socially conservative, they never really saw him as the right person. So that was always kind of uh, it was always kind of an awkward fit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's also that that side of it, which is that even people that were a little bit more centrist may have seen him as the person that would be able to get him the votes, you know, in the center that that others might not be able to access. Uh, and when that didn't come together, then I think you know, I think this may be a wider uh, you know, conversation about whether or not he's really the, the leader that's going to be able to, to get them into power. Considering where Ottawa is now with, with protests that are going on there and now the, the leader of, of the Conservative Party obviously changing, this is obviously going to take six months or so. Are we at a turning point here or, or, or is this a shift in any way? Uh, well, I'm not sure what you mean by a shift in terms of national politics, in terms of the Conservative politics. And can just gauging the temperature of Canadians, um, you know, uh, in his parting speech, O'Toole talked about how divided we are, despite having uh, high vaccination rates. Uh, obviously, people are upset with with Ottawa with the protest. Now we're getting a change in Conservative Party. I had one listener that sent me a note and said the protesters wanted the prime minister out and it's the leader of the opposition that loses his job. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it is interesting that it's happening at the same time as as the protests. I mean, the, the protests, to the extent that they represent sort of anti-vaccine, anti-science, you know, ideas, I think yeah. are very much outside of the mainstream of of Canadian politics. I mean, the overwhelming majority of Canadians are already vaccinated and and, and support that. Uh, I mean, I think though it's a little bit more you know sort of complicated for for the conservatives though because you know even though they are the most extreme side of that fringe it, that's not to say that there isn't a wider frustration that exists among a lot of people about how long some of the restrictions have been in place and what the plan that's is my point out of them yeah and and generally speaking the people that sort of feel that way tend to sort of vote with you know sort of the conservatives so i think there's a bit of a dilemma for the conservative party because they want to be seen as being receptive to uh you know people who might be have some have more questions about some of the health restrictions. But at the same time, they don't want to come off as looking like extremists and they don't want to be yeah. seen supporting people who are disorderly, who are desecrating monuments or, you know, who are, are flat out anti-science. So I think it's a little bit more of a balancing act for the conservatives to try to to walk that line. It's much easier, I think, for the liberals, you know, who really have, have, have made it very clear that they are, you know, much more aggressive in terms of some of the, uh, uh, you know, some of the, the health interventions and they want to be associated with that group. So it's a little bit more challenging, I think, for the conservatives. You can see as as the, the Ottawa protest goes on that more of the fringe elements are there. Uh, and, and obviously nobody supports, as you said, desecration of, of, of various monuments or, or, or what have you. And, and Lord knows where that's going to go now. That being said, um, certainly as far as as far as the convoy, uh, that's one thing. But the the temperature of Canadians, is it wrong to paint everyone with the same brush? There's a tremendous amount of frustration. There's a a, a tremendous amount of divisiveness in this country, even though we have one of the highest vaccination rates uh, of the world uh, in the world. So uh, again, it's easy to point at the bad truckers that are still there that don't necessarily represent the majority that are ninety percent vaccinated. But is there a larger or talk about that larger movement of discontent in this country? It may not be around vaccination, but it, it certainly is around government overreach. Well, I mean, I think to a degree, it reminded me a little bit of some of the conversations that happened during the election with the rise of the People's Party. And at that point, uh, you know, there was 
you know, it, it seemed as though, you know, Maxime Bernier had taken what had been a traditionally fairly hard right platform and he had linked it up with a sort of anti-vaccine, anti-mask, anti-lockdown crowd. And there was a lot of discussion about whether or not this reflected something new, something different. And to a degree, I think after the election happened, it looked like there was a little more smoke than fire when it came to that narrative, although it was very, very visible. But it looks like it's some of the same same sort of elements that are there. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, that there is a there is a group of, of Canadians that are, are, are again, quite, you know, looking for a way out of the pandemic uh, and are, are looking for some leadership on that. And there is, I think, a, a, you know, sort of a discussion about that. Whether or not this represents a fundamental shift, though, I don't think there's anything really we could say there, at least not yet. It would, we'd have to see much more, uh, you know, sort of success with sort of a Maxime Bernier message. Uh, I mean, I think right now most people look at at the the trucker convoy and they really don't see themselves in in that in in the very hard right, you know, anti vaccine message that they're seeing there. Where um, does this leave the center, Andrew? Uh, obviously, we know where the extremes are. Where does this leave the center? Yeah, I, like, and, and I mean, it's a good question. And I think it's, you know, it's definitely, I think, a question that the conservatives now have to ask themselves, right? I mean, they thought that they had gone with a sort of center candidate that yeah. could access that group of people. And, you know, now, now I think it looks like they're rethinking that. Now, at the same time, simply taking a hard right turn for the conservatives hasn't always, I think, been a winning strategy for them either. No. And, no. you know, we certainly saw that in the past. And it was a lot of this had to do with the electoral system, of course, but with, you know, the whole point of, you know, unifying the right with the Reform Party and the progressive conservatives was this idea that the Reform Party might be a little bit too extreme for people in Ontario and so forth. And, you know, we've had other leaders that have gotten themselves into some trouble if they've been seen as, as not accessible to the center. So, you know, there it is. I mean, it looks today, it looks as though the conservatives are now more in a mood for a bit of a right wing turn, but that's not a, you know, wave your magic wand situation and automatically everyone's going to stampede necessarily to the conservative party. It's going to depend on finding somebody, you know, who that first of all, the party I think can live with and and sort of sees itself in, but that does still have that broader appeal to to mainstream Canadians. And it's going to be a challenge to find somebody who can tick all those boxes. Only got a few seconds left. What does this mean for the Liberals moving forward? Is, a cake, is it a cakewalk for them for the next six months? Uh, I mean, that's actually, I mean, that is a good question. It is a minority parliament at the moment. I think they've got, so the, the opposition can bring them down really at any time. The reality is we just had an election very recently. So under any circumstances, they were going to have some breathing room. Um, so I don't think they were in any huge jeopardy. Uh, I think they're going to be obviously watching this this very, very closely. Um, but I think the Conservatives have decided to move when they knew that there was going to be a little bit of space. So I, I think if, if you're a Liberal, it's a matter of waiting and watching and seeing what happens with the Conservatives before you, you really do anything. Professor Andrew McDougall has been with us, University of Toronto. Andrew, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I've been still looking for your last word. If you've got one, send it to us. Will would love to lay you down uh, on, on uh, never mind, that's not coming out right. It's, uh, it's a digital analog thing. Scott Radley hosts the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, coming in after the six, uh, 6 o'clock news. He's with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I was waiting to see how you were going to finish that sentence where Will would like to lay you down. Yeah, and I had no idea where you were going. It was very well. You know the old, though. the old, you know the old uh, saying: uh, "Lay down some tracks, lay you down recording." That's I sort of lay it. you on, lay you down on tape, analog. But that's kind of not what we're dealing with anymore. You know, the reel to reels have been removed from the uh, control room for a long period of time now. 
All right. I want uh, to throw you... Were you were doing a verbal Harlequin novel pouring out of your mouth right there. <laughs> you know, no one's going to tear off someone's corset after he laid them down. <laughs> you know, we used to do a radio bit where we would read out of Harlequin romance novels, that but right? that's another story. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, so uh, some <laughs> two interesting... Su- two, <laughs> we should maybe, just for this segment. Uh, yeah. Two interesting emails I received today, uh, and, and I'm sort of paraphrasing these. Uh, Phil said, uh, protesters wanted the... The trucker protesters wanted the prime minister out, and it's O'Toole, the leader of opposition who was removed uh another one from joe uh and you know when i was watching uh the politicians being interviewed in regard to the o'toole thing uh you could just hear the horns constantly blaring uh in the background in ottawa to which joe says people in ottawa want their lives back which is also what the truckers want and that's why they are there so fascinating um different uh aspects on you know either side of this polarizing discussion all right your thoughts on uh the conservative leader being out are we going to see a more right-wing conservative party are we going to continue uh aaron o'toole tried to bring it into the center clearly that didn't work i've talked to uh poli sci people who have said it's not necessarily that it just he couldn't get the message across what are your thoughts um, I see. I don't know if it's going to be a more conservative party, but I think it's going to be a party that can express its conservative values more. Because uh, hmm. Aaron O'Toole, his problem, as we kept hearing, was that he could never really take a position and hold to it and explain why that was his position. And if you look at someone like I, I mean, obviously the favorite is Pierre Poilev, and and there would be no problem with taking and holding a position if it's him. And you will know where he's coming from, and you will know where he's standing. I don't know that he would be vastly more conservative than Aaron O'Toole, but I think you would get the idea that, well, here's what we are, and here's what we're going to do, and here's what we're all about, and tomorrow there won't be a different version of that. And and you want to know something? I think that probably if they do it right, right, if they if they – if they spend their time concentrating on the right things, and I don't mean right as in wing, I mean correct. Right. Um, I think there's a real chance for them to have success. And when I say the right things, look, I think the thing that everybody is concerned about now is not all the fluffity fluff stuff about whatever else. It's your finances. And yeah. the Conservative Party, I think, if they have brains in their head, become the party that spends almost all their time becoming the party of good stewardship of our tax dollars, of using our money wisely, of not just throwing money away, because you know what? Our debt is going up, and as interest rates go up, that debt is going to go up and up and up, and we have inflation, and you want, when the next election rolls around, if the economy is still wobbling or worse, you want to be the party that for the last number of years has been building your story as we are the party to look after your finances. Don't get lost in all the other stuff that, you know, seems to always distract the conservatives and gets them tied up in knots. Concentrate on what the thing is that you can do best and that will best resonate with the public, and I think you've got a chance. And that, I think, is where Aaron O'Toole kind of lost the narrative a lot of times. He kept changing and kept losing track of what are we all about, and I don't know that you could say what they were all about. There you have it. A uh, quick uh, peek of the show tonight. Who do you got? Can you tell us? We are, well, yeah, we're talking about that. We are, um, what else are we talking about? We are talking, oh, we're talking about 
what are they coming on about? Oh, yeah, sorry, it took me a second to remember what I've got. I've been so busy today. Um, there, have you seen all the studies now? There was a study out of Johns Hopkins this week that says lockdowns did absolutely nothing to save lives. Yeah. There are, there are other studies that say lockdowns did wonderful things to save lives. All scientific, all credible sources. How in the world do you sort through when we're supposed to follow the science and the science yeah. contradicts itself? How are we supposed to figure yeah. that out? We're going to talk about that. Everybody's science fits their particular narrative. Exactly. I love it when during the early stages, follow the science. It's like, well, which science? Do we follow NASA or do we follow Health Canada? That's and, you know, everybody's complaining we're muzzling scientists or scientists. Here's what happens when too many scientists don't speak with the same common thought. You know uh, Scott do, Radley. You know what they need to do? That? They need to come on the show and listen to you and I do a Harlequin reading one night. That'll solve the world's problem. Uh, or end up in a great big <laughs> hug. Either way, uh, Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up next, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great night, Scott. Thanks for the time. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks to both Wills, Will Erskine and Will Weber. Also, uh, Diana Weeks and Lisa Pulaski. As always, we leave it to you, the CHML listener, to have the last word. Why is everything so hard these days? You got the hard left, the hard right. Why can't I just get a hard seltzer?